We meet one more time, the 15th. And then the next time we're together will be January 12th, 2019. So isn't that crazy? We say it every year. But uh, just so you know, put that up, make sure that's on your calendar. And um, we look forward to being together the 15th for the last wellspring of the year. Snack sign up. There's still some spots. And I think even for next week, there's some spots. Oh, okay, great. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for just doing that. It's a blessing to have those treats. Uh, Dina's group cleans up. Dina and Ingrid today. And um, you guys, if you're Dina and Ingrid's group, um, I'll try to come in here too. We need to kind of do it quickly because the biblical counseling class is going to be coming in right after. So uh, we want to make that available to them. This morning, Sarah's going to be teaching us on um, bearing God's image as a biblical woman and what that looks like, what God's word says to us about that, how we live out the gospel. You know, when we look at our wellspring disciplines, um, we see that uh, we want to, the purpose is to live out the gospel, uh, and we want to shepherd our hearts with that, and in our homes, and in our ministries, and it, thinking about this lesson, even apart from what Christ has done uh, in and through the gift of salvation, uh, we would not, we would be thinking just like the world, right? We would um, not want to live in obedience to him and his word as biblical women. I lived um, as a unbiblical woman for 30-some years of my life, and um, I just am so thankful that he saved me and that I can pursue holiness and godliness as a biblical woman, and, you know, we never stop growing. So I want you to be encouraged this morning. I want you to be encouraged at what God has done. And so I am going to read from this book that we um, recommend you get, The Gospel Primer, and just read (laughs) the gospel. What is the gospel? Um, It is so, it's so helpful to have in front of us all the time, but in the busyness of this season, my goodness, there's so much stuff. There's so much hustle and bustle. Why are we celebrating what we're celebrating? It's this right here. So let's um, just take a moment and let's uh, talk about the most important gift, the most important thing we can think about um, during the season and any time. My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He's also been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from his loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to him and to his goodness. My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent upon him in whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all of my universe. And he has created me with the intention 
that I might glorify him by finding my soul's delight in him and by living in joyful obedience to him in all my ways. Yet, I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. Instead of giving thanks to him and humbly submitting to his rule over my life, I have rebelled against him and have actually sought to exalt myself above him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I have broken countless times either the letter or the spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I have shown myself to be a fool. And because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to the everlasting experience of his terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for myself, apart from Christ, I am bound by the guilt of my sins and also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Apart from Christ, I am also utterly deserving of and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself or even to make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. However, what I could not do, God did. And in doing it, he did it all, sending his own son into the world to die on the cross for my sins, thereby showing me unfathomable love. God loved me so much that he was willing to suffer the loss of his son. And even more amazingly, he was willing to allow his son to suffer the loss of him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much that he was willing to lay down his life for me, for us. No one could ever love me more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead, thereby announcing that his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit throughout my lifetime. God then exalted Christ to his own right hand, where Christ now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on him by faith. Now when my time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, God instantly granted me a great salvation. He forgave me all of my sins, past, present, and future. He made me his child adopting me into his family. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit, who gives me God's power, who pours out God's love within my heart, and who tenderly communicates to my heart that I am a child of God and an heir of eternal glory in heaven. In saving me, God also freed me from the slavery to any and all sins. I no longer have to sin again, for sin's mastery over me has been broken. In saving me, God also justified me. And being justified through Christ, I have a peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by Jesus who bore it upon himself while on the cross. Consequently, God now has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. 
God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's wrath abounds to me even through trials. Because I am justified, he subjugates every trial and forces it to do good unto me. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more as he graciously maintains my justified status as described above. When I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me, and he longs for me to repent and to confess my sins to him so that he might show me gracious and forgiving love that has been in his heart all along. God does not require my confession before he desires to forgive me. In his heart, he has already forgiven me, and when I come to him to confess my sins to him, he runs to me, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words of confession out of my mouth. He sees my sin and he grieves by my sin. His grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin, I'm not receiving the fullness of his love. He even sends chastisement in my life, but he does so because he is for me and he loves me. And he disciplines me for my ultimate good. I don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve any of this, even on our best days. But this is my salvation. And I and herein I stand. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for everything that was just said about what you have done to undeserved sinners like us. Lord, I pray that in this season we think about this, we meditate, we uh, come to you with grateful hearts, and we share the good news of the gospel with others. This morning, Lord, we want you to be glorified as we talk, as Sarah teaches on being um, a woman who honors you. Apart from the saving work, we wouldn't want to. So Lord, ha- help us to have compassion on those who don't know you, and uh, and help us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And this morning, I pray we would just be humble, teachable uh, servants of your gospel. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. That is so good. Thank you for just soaking our hearts in the gospel, Jamie. So good. Just a plug. If you don't have that book, put it on your Christmas list. <laughs> Ask for it. Go buy it for yourself. Go buy it for everyone you know. Okay. So glad to be with you all here this morning. Um, I know we just prayed, but I would just really like to pray again. Heavenly Father, thank you again for what we just heard. Thank you for your glorious plan of salvation, and thank you for yourself. Thank you that we get you. You've given us yourself. You haven't stopped short of giving us the very greatest, best, eternal, unfading treasure, your very self. Thank you for drawing us near through the blood of Jesus, for reconciling us to yourself. Lord, 
your ways are good and right. And Lord, I confess every time my heart chafes against your ways, that's my foolishness, my sin. Oh Lord, your ways are good and right. You know what's best. You made all things. So I plead with you right now as we go to your word, as we look together at your good design for us to bear your image as women who've been washed in the blood of Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that you would do your work. It would be your spirit at work in each one of our hearts, growing us in our understanding, in our obedience, in our love for your good ways, in our love for our Savior, in our fruitfulness and usefulness in your hands. Thank you so much, Lord. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so good to be here once again. Take out your notebook and turn it over. We're going to review our Wellspring Purpose and Disciplines just like we always do. And we're going to do this um, because we want these disciplines just to be ingrained in our thinking. Um, So ingrained that they promote our own growth in Christ and so that they prepare us to spur others on as well in their walk with the Lord. Uh, We want them to be right in the front of our thinking. Uh, We want to have right at the front of our responses questions like, okay, how do I need to be shepherding my heart with God's word in this? When life comes at us, we want to be thinking along the lines of how do I need to respond and live and speak to bring a gospel influence in my home and in my family? Um, We want to be asking ourselves questions like, sorry, I just got to get myself out from this cord. Okay. Um, Questions like, how can I strengthen my church by shepherding others toward God and the gospel? We want those just to be so ingrained that you poke us and that's what comes out. So that's why we review these week after week. Okay, so the Wellspring purpose, you have it there on your binder. It is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. And we do that with these three disciplines. Discipline one is the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And why do we need to do this? Well, do you remember this lesson? Okay, we're not going to let you forget this. This is a really, really important thing to understand. It's because believers are in a mixed condition. Um, We are not what we used to be. Remember over on this side? Go back and review that. My goodness, that will just fuel your praise to God to remember what he has saved you out of. We are no longer dead, blind, lost, hostile toward God, rebellious. You know, we were all of that. We were slaves of sin, and we loved it that way. Isn't that a scary thought? But in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Uh, We're not what we used to be. And a person who is born again can never go back to what they used to be. But what does God's word tell us about being a new creature? (coughs) Well, being a new creation in Christ, having a new heart, is not the same as what we will be someday when we have glorified bodies in heaven. When we are with Christ face to face, we won't even be able to sin. We'll be perfectly holy and pure But right now, we are new creations with all kinds of new abilities, 
new affections, new desires to love God and obey him, to love others, to fight sin. And at the very same time, we still have this residue of sin. We still battle our sinful flesh. Our heart is still deceptive and it is easily deceived. And that is why discipline one is completely non-negotiable for a healthy growing walk with the Lord. We are in a condition that if we do nothing, we will drift, we'll wander. Now what happens if you, not me, because I couldn't do this, but if you stood on a skateboard on a hill (laughs) and if you did nothing, if you're not pushing up the hill, you're just gonna roll down that hill, right? There's no way around it. And that's what our hearts do if we're not actively pursuing Christ in his word. Coming to the word to put ourselves under the word, recognizing our need for the word because we need the God of the word. See, our hearts are leaky. They're like a sip. We can spend sweet time submitting ourselves to God and delighting in him and his word, and then we walk away, and our hearts just so easily drift to godless ways of thinking, speaking, living. So shepherding our hearts with God's word is a pursuit that must be fed by daily drawing near to God in his word and in prayer. Wasn't that lesson we had last time with Josh so helpful? Yeah, oh my goodness, we need to get those notes out over and over. And then we actively fight to bring that truth back to our hearts over and over again throughout each day. And as we do that, then we are ready and we're growing in our um, readiness to be fruitful in discipline two and discipline three. So discipline two is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart, um, I'm sorry, with her heart fixed on God and his word. Now, when we understand our mixed condition, it gives us a healthy distrust of ourselves um, and a humble reliance on God and his word. And that's exactly what enables us to care for those in our homes, those who live there and those who visit. It's a way that um, it helps us to care for them in a way that puts Christ on display, even in our responses and our attitudes when things don't go the way we're expecting or the way we want. Discipline three, then, is ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, The faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, not only are you in a mixed condition, But you are also in a church full of people who are also in a mixed condition. And that means that we need to stir up one another to love and to good deeds, the kind of love and good deeds that overflow from hearts shepherded toward God and the gospel. So we shepherd our own hearts and we help and encourage one another to do the same. Okay, so those are the disciplines. Now this morning, we are going to look at what God's word says about God's design for us to bear his image as women. Now how many of you have thought about the topic of biblical womanhood 
or God's design for women. You know, hopefully, if you've been in Wellspring before, you have. But do you think that maybe some of what we believe, um, some of our thinking maybe about our womanhood or our femininity is based on or influenced by our culture and not based on scripture? You know, our culture today has so much to say about this topic of womanhood, and it's doing all it can to influence us and to even demand that we agree with its opinions on things like gender roles, gender identity, feminism, marriage, sexuality, rights, diversity, tolerance. It is all over social media, blogs, the news, entertainment. It's in the educational system. It's in our clothing styles. It's in children's books and clubs. Whether it's a message of equal rights and men bashing or of unlimited freedoms to express sensuality and sexuality or of absolute personal autonomy to define one's own gender identity, it is what is saturating and being celebrated by our culture. And it is a full-on rebellion against God. And I, too was completely rebellious um, until God intervened. I needed a new heart, and God, in his mercy, gave me a new heart. He gives a new heart to all rebels who turn to Christ in repentance and faith. We need to remember that, right? He is the one who gives us new desires that change the way we are to think about these things and the way we are to live. And so let's keep that in mind, and let's cultivate hearts of love and prayer for others, for our leaders, and for those rebelling against God's design, that God in his mercy would intervene, that they would humble themselves and repent, and that he would save those who don't know him. See, when we understand God's good design, we can offer hope to those who are helplessly confused and deceived about who God made them to be. So we need to see where our culture has embraced ideas that completely deny our creator's perfect design so that we are careful to think biblically. John Piper and Wayne Grudem wrote this quote that you have in your notes. They wrote this several years ago now, but it is just spot on with um, the way things are going. And they wrote, the tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness or femaleness. But this depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. It is taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is epidemic. The consequence of this confusion is not a free and happy harmony among gender-free persons, which is what they are after. The consequence, rather, is more divorce more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more emotional distress and suicide that come with the loss of God-given identity. See, this is the world we live in. This is where godlessness, the exaltation of self against God, has taken us. And it may be very close to some of you, and that is hard. And I want you to hear me say 
that I'm here to encourage and I'm here to speak truth and to help us gain a strong biblical understanding of God's good design for us and to do that with humility and to do that with compassion because this is difficult. This is certainly not politically correct, but that's okay because we want to be biblically correct. And so we need to know what God's word says. He's our creator, and as our creator, he alone has the right to rule us. He created us in his own image, male and female, and he is the only one who can tell us his purpose and his design for us as women. Now, in the past, uh, truths about gender and marriage, they were generally caught, right? We could just assume that kids would pick that up growing up in their family, but now they have to be intentionally taught. Things have changed. Our children, grandchildren, other children in our lives, they need to be taught and shepherded toward thinking and acting biblically about their identity as girls and boys. So they understand that God is the one who reveals his design for us. You know, it's so critical that we are grounded in deep gospel-centered theology about God's design for gender, for sexuality, for marriage. We can't even assume that people in the church have a biblical framework for understanding these things because what kind of people does God save, right? He saves sinners like you and me and sinners who may very well be saturated in the lies of the culture. And so just as he is teaching us from his word and he's changing us, um, he's changing our thinking to be more and more in alignment with his word, we have the privilege of being his instruments to help others understand how beautiful his design is. In addition, having a strong grasp on God's design for us to bear his image as women is going to help us know how to glorify him in our own different seasons of life, both when we are single as well as when we are married. So we need to know and we need to humbly speak and live out clearly what the Bible teaches about womanhood, about our identity, without fear, even though we may be persecuted for speaking the truth. But we do it, and we're, we need to do it in love and with conviction from God's word. Now, Grace Bible Church has eight biblical convictions, and they're on the website. You can just go up at the top and click on the link and find them there. But we are basically going to cover number seven, which is biblical manhood and womanhood in our church. We are going to survey scripture this morning where we will see God doing two things throughout his sufficient and inerrant word that cannot be separated. Yeah, we're still on the front page there. Um, spiritual equality, you have this at your notes. Men and women are spiritually equal before God and each other. And role differentiation or different roles, the distinction and differences between the roles of men and women, especially in the church and in the family. These are two inseparable realities. Men and women are spiritually equal before God, and we have different roles. This is called the complementarian view, and we will see this throughout God's word, Old Testament and New Testament. And we embrace the complementarian view because that's what God has revealed in Scripture. And we embrace this view because of the amazing revelation that biblical manhood and biblical womanhood bring into this dark world. So we don't look to our culture, we don't look to our feelings, our opinions, but rather we want to humbly embrace whatever God has given us to make him more visible. So go ahead now, we're on the second page of your notes, turn to Genesis 1.26. 
Jamie, would you bring me a copy of the outline? I don't have mine handy, and I think I maybe can help point to where we are if I have one in front of me. We're going to start with looking at spiritual equality in the Old Testament, um, and we will look at both spiritual equality and role differentiation. Thank you so much. And we're going to look at it first in the Old Testament, and then we will look at it in the Gospels and Jesus' ministry, and then we will look at the rest of the New Testament. And from the very beginning, we see in Scripture, right here in Genesis 1, that men and women are equally created in the image of God. So let's read beginning in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So did you hear that? Male and female, he created them. See, we're his design. Male and female were created in the image of God. Neither one has more or less of God's image than the other. Together, they were created to exercise dominion on the earth and to fill the earth with the image of God. So what is the image of God? Well, Colossians 1.15 tells us that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So we can look to Jesus to see what God's image is. Now turn with me to Philippians 2. Philippians 2 gives us a really helpful description of Jesus and how he bore this image of God. So Philippians 2, verse 6 begins, speaking of Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus existed in the form of God. Form is a similar word to image. He existed in the image of God. And then he didn't regard that unity, that equality with God as something to be grasped after. But verse 7 says he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. That's a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself, even by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, being in the form or the image of God, it did not lead Jesus to promote himself, to fight for his rights, but rather he emptied himself, took the form of a slave. He humbled himself himself, even to the point of death on a cross. We see in Jesus that foundational to the image of God is serving and giving, not grasping for yourself, for your rights, but of humbly giving yourself away like a slave does. That is the image in which men and women were created to bear this image of humble self-giving love in Christ. Men and women are spiritually equal before God and others, created to bear God's image of self-giving love. 
However, men and women have also been equally impacted and corrupted by sin. That's the next bullet on our outline there under spiritual equality. Go ahead and now turn to Genesis 3. Get a chance to practice our Bible drills this morning. So after man, male and female, were created in God's image in Genesis 1, right around the corner in Genesis 3, sin entered the world. Now in between, in Genesis 2, we find a more detailed account of the sixth day of creation. So God created the man, and he placed him in a garden, and then he gave him one restriction. He told him he could eat from any tree of the garden except just one. He must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in Genesis 3.1, we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And then he proceeds to slander God to Eve. And eventually down in verse 6, we read that when the woman saw that the tree, this is talking about the forbidden tree, that it was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that it, the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. So God had given only one restriction. But the serpent came and slandered God, and Eve's heart was enticed away from being self-giving to being self-grasping, tarnishing the display of God's image in her. That's what we do when we live for ourselves, when we grasp self-rule instead of trusting God's rule. So Eve sinned and then Adam gave in, and two self-graspers obscured the image of God in them. And we have all been plagued by that ever since. So men and women are both created in the image of God, and we are equally impacted by and corrupted by sin's presence and sin's power. Men and women are both equally unable to change their sinful condition, and both are equally in need of salvation. One is not more in the image of God than the other, and one is not more spiritually bankrupt than the other. We are spiritually equal, but there are differences in our roles that God designed for us. And the fact that men and women have spiritual equality and role distinction is part of how we bear God's image. Do you remember what we read in Genesis 1? Did you notice that God hinted from the very beginning that there's a plurality in the Godhead? He used both plural and singular pronouns to refer to himself. And then in the New Testament, the mystery and the beauty of the Trinity are more fully unfolded for us. All three persons of the Godhead are shown to be fully God and they have divine equality and they have different roles. Does that sound familiar? The equality and the differences all at the same time? Each of the three members of the Godhead manifest the self-giving love toward one another. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father and gives himself over to the Father's will to redeem his people. And the Spirit gives of himself to reveal the Son to his people. They each take on a different role without losing any self-giving love, without losing any deity. And there's also role differentiation between men and women. It's part of God's design for us to display his image. So on the outline, let's look at role differentiation. You can turn to Genesis 2.18. 
where we see that God gave men and women different roles before the fall. This is really important to understand. So beginning in Genesis 2.18, we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So God, he made all the animals. He brought them to the man to be named. But then in verse 20, it says, For Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. It was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. God created man for a particular task, and he needed a helper. Adam was incomplete without someone to compliment him in fulfilling the task of displaying God's image and taking dominion over the earth. So God created woman. Notice that none of the animals were a suitable helper for him. Adam didn't need them. He didn't need another Adam. He needed someone who was different. He needed Eve. Another way we see different roles is that in Genesis 2.15, God commanded Adam not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before Eve was even created. And yet by Genesis 3, Eve clearly knows the commands as well. God had entrusted Eve's instruction to Adam. So right here in Genesis 2, we already see differing roles for men and women. And God created man first and then the woman. God had an order in mind when he created, an order that Paul appeals to even when we get to the New Testament as an explanation for our different roles. So women were created in God's image, and we were created to be distinct from men. Not identical, but complementary, equally bearing God's image as we fulfill different roles. And that all happened before sin entered the world. See, our roles were not introduced as punishment because of the fall. Our roles are not God's punishment at all. So God established that men would be in leadership roles right from the beginning. Now, in Old Testament Israel, we see role distinctions. I think you have this in your notes as well. Let's see. Yeah, we're still on page, where are we, page three? Bottom of page two. Thank you. Yes, we're right at the bottom of page two. Um, so we, there are role distinctions in that men were responsible for the national and religious leadership from the garden to the final prophets, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all the kings, the priesthood of Israel, the prophets of the nation. And women were also active in the religious life of the nation. Miriam and Huldah are named as prophetesses, and Deborah was a judge. But what we do not have an account for is significant. There were never any women priests, no women who were heads of tribes, no women kings. So what does the Old Testament tell us about a woman's role? Well, if there's any Old Testament passage that exemplifies God's design for a woman, it's Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. It's at the top of page three in your notes. Throughout the Proverbs, we see the importance of a woman's godliness and her purity, and particularly her wise influence in her home. We have a lesson on that next week. Um, we see the importance of a woman's godliness in her home relationships and in her diligence and her stewardship and her discretion. 
But Proverbs 31 distills all of that down into one description of an excellent woman. And remember, this is a mother describing the kind of woman her son should marry. He was to look for these kinds of qualities in the single woman he would choose for a wife. And if you'll recall, we talked about this woman when we studied Titus 2. We had a whole list of principles from her life that help us understand how to be godly workers in our home. And I gave you some homework to go back and read Proverbs 31. And if you did that, you saw that this woman is bearing God's image of self-giving love by pouring herself out in creative, industrious, fruitful, joyful service to those around her. She understands that her household is a center of productivity and fruitfulness, that if she's married, supports and encourages and helps her husband in his role uh, to lead and to provide and to protect, and then radiates out to bless and serve her household and those beyond her household as well. So we see in the Old Testament this pattern of spiritual equality as well as role differentiation. Now, if you've been reading your Old Testament at all, you know we don't have to go very far before we start seeing distortions of God's design. And where do those distortions come from? They come from sin. Remember what happened in Genesis 3? Notice what sin does. This is our next bullet. Sin distorted their God-given role differentiation. Sin did not introduce it. And the distortion of our roles did not start when God pronounced the curse on women in Genesis 3.16. It started at the very beginning of chapter 3. Do you remember we saw Eve in this conversation with the serpent, the tempter? And he's evil and he's deceptive. And then in verse 6, we saw that she believed his lie. The lie that if she gave in, she'd become wise. The lie that God was keeping something from her. And so she disobeyed God, and she ate, and then she gave to her husband, and he rebelliously ate. We already saw that. But we just need to stop and notice, who was Eve listening to? Who was she trusting? She was trusting in herself, in her own understanding. Already she's displaying independence, self-grasping, self-reliance. She was getting out from under God's authority out from under her husband's leadership and protection and seeking to satisfy herself. She was rebelling against God. At that point was Eve bearing God's image of a servant, of self-giving love. Was she fulfilling her role as a helper to Adam? Is she honoring God's right to define her role? Now, Adam certainly had his own part that he is fully responsible for as well. But in a world previously untouched by sin, Eve believed the lie that she could trust something, anything other than God. Rather than following the leadership God gave her, she turned all that around and led her leader into sin. That's what sin does. It distorts our view of God, our view of ourselves, and our God-given role differences. But why did God give us roles? It's because he has something to communicate through them. And sin's motive is to destroy that image through undoing the roles that God has given us. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, there were consequences. 
They forfeited the goodness of the garden. They traded unhindered fellowship with God. There's pain in childbirth. Work is now full of toil and difficulty. No part of life from birth to the grave has been left untouched by the corruption of sin. Now, Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin, but we are no different. See, equal rights, men, gender, those things are not the problem like the world would have us think. We need to understand and acknowledge our problem truly is sin. Sin warps everything, and sin is the reason we need a Savior. So that was the Old Testament. Now we're going to look at how Jesus emphasized the exact same thing. There's a consistent pattern throughout God's word. This is God's plan from the beginning, and it's continuing on. So we're number two on the outline on page three. Jesus dramatically emphasized a woman's spiritual equality with men in the midst of a woman demeaning Greek, Roman, and even Jewish culture. In that culture, women were possessions. They weren't even considered worthy to be taught God's word. In fact, they believed it was better to burn God's word than to teach it to a woman. They claimed that by their very nature, women couldn't understand spiritual truth. Men in Jesus' day normally would not allow women to even count change into their hands for fear of physical contact. But Jesus dramatically countered this godless view of women. You look at some of these in your homework. You have this in your notes. In the Gospels, Jesus used illustrations and images familiar to women and useful to women. He revealed himself as Messiah to women. When Jesus stayed with Mary and Martha, he taught Mary as she sat at his feet, which was completely counter-cultural. Jesus healed women. He touched women. He allowed them to touch him. And in John 20, Jesus revealed himself first to Mary Magdalene after his resurrection. He sent her to tell the men, despite Jewish courts not allowing a woman to testify because they were considered liars. See, in Jesus' treatment of women, he showed them compassion and he showed them respect in a way they had never known in their culture. He did not demean women ever. All of this demonstrated their spiritual equality. Jesus, though, at the same time, did nothing to exalt women to a place of leadership over men. And what he also never did, though he clearly could have, is to choose any woman to be among his 12 apostles. That would have been the perfect time to do that. It would have been a prime opportunity to change what God had so far revealed in the Old Testament if he wanted to establish a change for women's roles. But he didn't change women's roles. Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't choose any women to be his apostles? It's because he affirms and he continues God's view and pattern for the role of women established way back at creation. Now remember, he created Eve to be a suitable helper for Adam. And we saw the diligence of the Proverbs 31 woman pouring herself out in eager service. And in the Gospels, we see many women serving and helping in the ministry of Jesus. Anna was a widow 
who thanked God and told others about Jesus when he was first brought to the temple as an infant. In Luke 10 and John 12, we find Martha, who hosted Jesus in her home and served while Jesus taught and fellowshiped with others. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and other women traveled with Jesus, ministered to him, and contributed to his support out of their own private means. So we see that just like we saw in the Old Testament, Jesus affirmed the principle of spiritual equality and role distinction. Okay, that brings us then to number three on our outline, page four. So under the rest of the New Testament, spiritual equality, we see Galatians 3.28. You have that printed out in your notes. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Redemption involves no distinction between male and female. Salvation comes with no preference given to one gender over another. Through the gospel, men and women are both being conformed to the image of Christ. For example, on your outline, you have um, Acts 18. Priscilla and her husband Aquila, they ministered together. And interestingly, when this couple is mentioned in Scripture, she is always listed first. Together, they served Apollos to build him up with more complete teaching on Christ to correct some doctrinal issues. In Philippians 4, Euodia and Syntyche, who are both women, shared Paul's struggle in the cause of the gospel. All believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and all believers receive spiritual gifts. And 1 Peter 3 tells us that the wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. However, there are differences in roles. You know, it's so easy for us to see the gospel when we look at spiritual equality in the New Testament. We just love, and we should love, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That men and women have an equal need for Jesus, and we have an equal cleansing in his blood. But... The gospel is on display every bit as much in the different roles God gives for men and women in the New Testament. He has designed different roles specifically for us in order that we participate together in displaying what the gospel does in our lives. Remember, what we see in the word is inspired by God's Holy Spirit. It was not inspired by the culture of the day. We can trust God's design. Now, in your outline, you have references that help us understand some of the distinctives between men and women in the church. And to summarize them, we would say this, that men are primarily responsible for the leadership, the teaching, and the protection of the body. For leadership roles of the church, the elders and deacons are offices filled by men. As our leaders, they keep watch over us. They guard us. They are an example for us. They equip us. They build us up. They care for us. They labor diligently. Men have the incredible responsibility to display Christ-like shepherding care and his loving servant leadership toward the body. They have a huge responsibility. 
And God's word tells all believers, men and women, to appreciate them, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, and to obey our church leaders and to submit to their authority. Now, for women, the roles and privileges that God has for us display our trust in God's leadership for us through our church leaders. And so what does that look like in the New Testament? Well, just a few weeks ago, we studied Titus 2 together, where we saw that women have an important role that's necessary for the church to be put in order. It's a role that protects households from being upset and that ultimately God's guards God's word from being dishonored. It's important, isn't it? And in this role, women encourage and teach other women to put the gospel's work in them on display in every area of their lives, beginning in our homes. Once again, we see that this keeps pointing back to discipline too. And elsewhere in the New Testament, we see women actively serving, extending hospitality, and devoted to every good work in the service of the gospel and of the church. And so with our different roles, we use the gifts, the abilities, the resources that God has entrusted to us as we serve under our church leadership. We serve in cooperation with their leadership and submitting to their leadership. We display the self-giving love of Christ. We bear his image as we follow and encourage our leadership. So when we serve in our ministries in the church, they are all overseen by elders and deacons. Wellspring is overseen by the elders. Smedley is leading us this year. And there's protection in that. See, our elders, they love the Lord, and they love his church, and they love and care for us. And they serve us through their leadership. We need their shepherding, we need their leadership, and it is just such a blessing, isn't it, to know that we have that. This is all about how God displays his love and care and protection and leadership for his people and how we, his people, trust him and follow his lead. And I think it's helpful here, this is the next bullet in your notes, um, to talk about God's design for us in the church, particularly when we are not married. You know, we, t we will talk more about marriage in a moment, but because marriage is such a beautiful picture of Christ's love for his church, we can tend to miss God's beautiful design for us in seasons when we are not married. See, every woman is single at some point, at least before she gets married, and on average, women outlive men by seven or eight years. That means most married women will be single again. I have one grandmother who was a widow for 22 years and another who was a widow for 27 years. It's a long time. But what we need to understand is that all of these seasons are ordained by God for good. They're for good. They're for our good, and they are for the good of our church. Um, as we live out his design for us as biblical women in every season in which he puts us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that single women have an opportunity for a unique kind of undistracted devotion to the Lord. And we see examples of that in the New Testament. Now, Scripture doesn't explicitly tell us that these women were single. However, where there is a lack of any kind of reference to a husband, these references seem to imply that these women were not married. Now, we already mentioned Anna 
Mary and Martha and some other women in the Gospels. And in Acts 9, the wording used to describe Tabitha is really interesting. It tells us that she abounded in deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. She was known for sewing clothes for widows. And in Acts 16, we find Lydia, a businesswoman who opened her home in service to the gospel and the church. Romans 16, Paul referred to Phoebe as our sister. She was a servant of the church, and she was a helper or a patroness of many, including Paul. And it's likely that she delivered this letter to the believers in Rome from Paul, who was in Corinth. Can you even begin to imagine what a trip like that would have meant for a woman in that day? And so as we look at these examples, we see a wonderful variety of ministries. These women's ministries were not hindered by the role um, that they had as women in the church, but rather they were making the most of the opportunities they had to put Christ on display through their loving service under the leadership God gave them. And for us as well, when we're single, there are usually fewer demands on us from our households and families. And so we have more opportunities for ministry outside of our home. Now, by all means, value marriage. Marriage is God's good design, and we honor him by honoring marriage and encouraging marriages. It's a wonderful thing to desire marriage. But marriage is not what completes us. Christ is. He is our master. He is our treasure. He's the satisfaction of our souls. He's the one directing our paths day by day and season by season. And really, we wouldn't want it any other way. So if you're single or when any of us are single, let's purpose to live for Christ as godly women, to take advantage of the unique opportunities of this season to live with undistracted devotion to the Lord under the leadership God has provided for us in the church. And just as it is important for all women to have a biblical understanding of marriage, it's important that we all have a biblical understanding of singleness as well so that we can encourage and appreciate women in this season of life who are spending themselves well in the service of the Lord in unique ways like Tabitha and Lydia and Phoebe did. All of us in every season have the immense privilege of putting the self-giving love of God on display as we serve as biblical women wherever God places us. Okay, so now let's talk specifically about role differentiation in marriage. Turn to Ephesians 5. Okay, now notice as we read not only the different roles for men and women, but also how these roles point to the relationship between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he goes on to elaborate and explain that. And then jumping down to verse 33, Nevertheless, 
Each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So the wife displays the image of God in marriage by willingly yielding herself to the authority God has placed over her in her husband. Submission literally means to line yourself up under. We talked about that in the Titus 2 lesson. It's how a wife is to posture herself under her husband's leadership. And just think about this for a minute. God saved us out of being self-grasping. And now we get to give ourselves away to display Jesus. And if we remember that, that we are now being renewed in the image of Christ, of self-giving love, then submission is a privilege. It does not display his image to be self-grasping, to be controlling. See, as believers, our treasure, our joy, our heart's delight is in Jesus. And he frees us from slavery to self to serve him. And if we're married, we do that by submitting to our husband. Marriage is a precious opportunity to display the submission of the church to Jesus. And we need to recognize that men have a weighty call. And a wife helps her husband not by taking over, not by criticizing, but by following him, respecting him, being supportive, encouraging, praying for him, serving him, being a faithful sister in Christ. Even if your husband is not a believer, you need to be understanding of how challenging his role is and appreciate him for the role that God has given him in your life. Husbands have a very difficult calling to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And we need to have tender, humble hearts that make that as easy as possible for them. See, whether we're single or married, we all have the privilege of displaying our trusting submission to the Lord by submitting appropriately to the authorities God places over us. So when we fulfill our God-given roles and we live in humble, respectful submission and support under our church leaders, under our husbands, under other authorities, the gospel is put on display. And we actually demonstrate to one another and to the watching world the relationship we were saved into at the cross. Jesus in relationship with his bride. This is why we embrace who God has created us to be, because God has something to reveal about himself through not only our spiritual quality, but also through our different roles. This is so important. You know, if we seek to erase our God-given roles, then we make the image of God within us less visible. We're image bearers of the living God. Just think about that. An equal before the cross and he's given us these different divinely assigned roles. And when redeemed men and women live and work together as God intended, being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, it's beautiful. And there's joy, and it's satisfying, and it's God-glorifying. Okay, so we've seen that God's word 
consistently presents a picture of biblical manhood and womanhood in which there's this spiritual equality and role differentiation. I'm pretty sure when you wake up at the middle of the night tonight, you're going to be like, <gasps> spiritual equality and role differentiation, because we've said that about 500 times today. So if that happens, then that's good. You got it. Okay. But we saw it in the Old Testament, we saw it in Jesus' ministry, and we saw it in the New Testament. So how do we respond to that? We need to grow and we need to encourage one another to embrace and love the roles he has for us because God will best be seen within us, within our marriages, within our families, and within our culture as we are obedient to him in these roles. And we do it because it exalts God to not live up to the role God has given us as men and women or to cross the role boundaries God has for us is to cloud the visibility of God in and through us. It sends a distorted message to the lost world around us. His created order is beautiful. God took delight in it. What did he say at creation? He said it is good. It's good. And so no wonder that this is at the center of such a strong battle today. But you know what? It wasn't just today, is it? Why do you think it was written in God's word? It's always been a battle, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, God determines how we best glorify him. So we look at God's heart, at his heart for male, and his heart for female, and his heart for authority, his heart for leadership, and we bow. We must look at all that and say, God, you tell me how I best glorify you, and I will humbly bring myself in line with that. You're my creator. You have every right to rule what you've made, and your rule is good. And you know, if we're not grounding our lives and our thinking in the word of God about what it means to be a woman biblically, then sooner or later we'll be vulnerable to the very same kinds of thinking that have turned our secular culture upside down. We need to realize that every time I elevate my independence, my life plans, my opinions, my rights, over what would bring glory to God and displaying his image of self-giving love, it's rebellion against God who created and, and who he created me to be. See, the truth is that apart from the gospel, this really makes no sense. It's foolishness to the world. None of life makes sense apart from the gospel. It is our only motivator to live in the fullness of God's good plan and his gospel purposes. And so we need to understand God's design and then help younger women and help children understand that this is God's beautiful design all the way back to creation. So they'll recognize and reject the world's voices and they can be confident in who God created them to be. Okay, so that is all that's in your worksheet. But after the worksheets were printed, I realized we have time to include one more thing, which really shouldn't be, it's not a, it's, it's happening at the end of the lesson, but that doesn't mean it's of least importance. It's actually central to understanding what God has for us as biblical women. So we're not quite done, okay? And you don't have any notes in your outlines. So you have to listen really carefully and take your own notes for this. Okay. So another loud competing voice from our culture, and it has been for years, like we just said, there's nothing new under the sun, is that of sexuality and sensuality. It is big money. It sells, and it is being marketed to us in every way. But 1 Timothy 2.9 says that women are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, 
Now that is countercultural. We are called to be modest, discreet, and self-controlled in our actions and how we dress. See, our attitude, our behavior, our dress, these are all matters of worship. Here's what John MacArthur says. You show me a woman with a beautiful character. You show me a woman with a meek and quiet spirit. You show me a woman who has an incorruptible heart. You show me a woman who comes to worship God. And I'll show you a woman whose wardrobe you don't have to worry about because the heart dictates the issue. See, the way we dress goes right to the heart of why we wear what we wear. Any discussion on modesty begins with the heart. See, the world's loud competing voice to us is that we can make much of ourselves and we can feel good about ourselves. We can flaunt ourselves however we want, flaunting certain features, that you have the right, you have the freedom to dress however you want and expose whatever you want. It's your body. If you don't like it, don't look kind of attitude. That's what the world would say. But it's different for us. We're called and have the privilege to display something way more glorious. We get to display our Savior. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We see in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, that our beauty doesn't come from our outward adornment, but that it should be the hidden person of the heart, which is the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. So what should our aim be as women? Well, if we profess Christ, our motivation for what we wear is to be distinct and different from our culture's message. Now, while men are fully responsible to God for their minds, for their hearts, for their eyes, it's still true that men can be stimulated visually by the things they see even when they don't want to look, even when they are battling to be pure. When we dress immodestly, it sends a visual message to a man whether or not we mean to. So, are we placing obstacles in their way by how we dress? In Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about going to great effort to help a brother not stumble in his walk with the Lord. We can help others not to stumble by dressing modestly, giving men and even other women a rest for their eyes. Doesn't that display God's image of self-giving love? So here are some questions we can ask. Are our clothes provocative, seductive? Do they honor nakedness? I mean, what is the purpose of clothes? Clothes are supposed to cover nakedness, right? They're not supposed to be drawing attention to our naked skin, especially certain areas. Maybe you've heard it put this way, modesty is humility expressed in what we wear. It's a desire to honor God and to serve others and not promote or provoke sensuality or lust. Modesty means you agree with the Lord about the true purpose of clothing and set aside self-interest to dress in a way that exalts Christ. Now, this is uncomfortable, right? <laughs> but we are women, and we're mature women, and we just need to be real. We need to talk about this. 
We need to talk about God's word and his heart for us. And there are parts of our body that would be considered naked that are for our husbands or possible future husband's eyes only, uh, not for anyone else's. And one of those would be our breasts. Um, they're not for everyone to see, not in full and not in part. You know, it seems like we just see this everywhere. It feels like such a normal part of society. Um, but cleavage causes a lot of men to lust. Not all men, but many men. And we need to know and we need to evaluate. So I'll tell you, if you see me, please tell me. Just because I'm standing here does not mean I've got this wired. We need to help each other. You know, sometimes we just aren't aware of how our clothing looks when we walk away from the mirror. We start moving or we lean over or we're carrying things. We got a bag over our shoulder. Things shift and move and we need to help each other. And we need to pray. We need to ask the Lord to help us be discerning, to understand what pleases him. To be careful about how low, how short, how tight, how thin or see-through, how revealing things are. My husband's always helping me check how far apart are my buttons, you know? Sometimes I just need a shirt underneath. He's like, oh, I think you need a snap. It's like, oh, I didn't know that because I don't, I don't look from that angle. Um, so we just, we need to, we need to ask and we need to help each other. And we need to um, not assume that just because something is common, that it's necessarily appropriate, right? Um, and so we also need to be teaching our daughters from the time they're little. You don't want to start when they're 16. So let's ask ourselves, are we being seduced and lured by the world's temptation to look more like the world? Or are we loving and worshiping God by taking care to be purposeful in how we dress? Are we willing to lean on the side of caution? Or are we trying to push the boundaries? So please understand, I'm not talking about a gunny sack, okay? That would be very distracting. Uh, being dowdy or odd is not more spiritual. It is probably more comfortable, <laughs> but it's not more spiritual. <laughs> I like comfortable, I'll just tell you that. Um, but dressing inappropriately dowdy or in an odd way, that actually puts more attention on us rather than on the Lord, right? So that's not what we're saying. But what we want to aim for is what is appropriate for us, for our budget, for the things we do, for the places we go. We can dress fashionably and modestly. And it's challenging, right? It's challenging to find clothing. We have to be selective. But it's worth persevering to find those things that enhance our ability to reflect Christ, not detract from it. Modesty really is about conviction. Um, what I wear relates to why and how I worship and how I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, so in closing, we may need this reminder that there will always be cultural trends that shift and change and shout at us with loud, very alluring voices. But we can take our cues and definitions from scripture and not the culture. And we can confidently trust in that. The word of God never changes. And that is so comforting. Without a doubt, in our mixed condition, we will always have to guard ourselves against our self-willed mindset in our hearts. And I hope that after today that we will all ask God, where has worldly thinking seeped in about this into my heart? 
You know, our lives are about bringing glory to Jesus Christ, and we do that as male and female in distinctive ways. That's why God created us male and female, to tell this great love story of the bridegroom Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Men and women point to that story in different ways as men and women. And that's why it's so important that we know and we love and we embrace and we humbly bow and that we teach it to the next generation. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is overflowing. It's rich. It's powerful. Lord, it is piercing. Lord, it's piercing. We can never be at a place where we just assume we've got this wrapped up and tied up and we don't need to think about it. Lord, thank you so much for your word that's unchanging and it's true. Oh, Father, I pray that you would be pleased to bring much fruit from the truth of your word in our lives. I pray that in our discussion groups today that you would be guiding and directing our conversations to help each one of us be spurred on. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, go ahead and just pull out your homework real quick before we dismiss. Okay, so you know that you get these every time. Um, there's one question on here I want to encourage you at least to be thinking about before next Friday, two Friday nights from now, before the next Wellspring, because we do meet two weeks from now. But if you um, look at your looking day-by-day question, it's a chance to consider a verse from Psalm 119 and to evaluate what specific um, things might you need to do to um, guard your time with the Lord over the Christmas holidays. Um, I think especially for us as women, we there can be a lot of very fun things, a lot of things we enjoy, a lot of ways that we enjoy serving others. Um, but if we're not careful, it can distract us from the most important thing. Um, so you just might at least want to think about that question, if not actually take some time even today or tomorrow to answer that in preparation to help guard your time with the Lord in the next month. And then just the other, this is just a little homework pep talk. I'll just tell you, I think the homework is hard. Not because it's um, not because it's confusing, but it's hard because it's penetrating. I mean, it really, to get the benefit of it, you're taking this lesson, you're looking at it, and you're examining yourself. And every time I do the homework, I see areas of sin. I see areas that I've neglected, areas that I, I want to grow in. And that's what makes it hard. And that's what makes it so good. It makes it essential. So please um, let yourself get the benefit from it. Take the time. Do the hard work of letting God's word convict you and, and to grow from the lessons. And understand that when you turn it in, it's not being graded. It's not being evaluated for is it right? Is it wrong? That is not it at all. Um, we, uh, the leaders really love the opportunity, first of all, to be challenged and to grow in our own walk with the Lord because we see what God is doing in everybody else. That's, that's really the biggest thing. And hopefully we can be an encouragement to you to press on and to help you see that God is at work in your life as you labor hard to get the benefit through doing the homework. So that's just a little homework pep talk because sometimes it can be less motivating to dive in and do something that you know is just going to expose your heart again. Okay, that's it. Thanks for being here.